The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would lead us through this text, open up your word to us this morning, and help us to see you and see Jesus more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd also like to welcome you this morning. Uh, My name is Jamie Duggett. I'm the pastoral intern here, and I am once again preaching on a psalm, as I've been doing for a while now. This week is Psalm 23. If you Google sheep in the news, something I'm not sure why you would do unless you're preparing a sermon on Psalm 23, you'll notice some themes pretty quickly. Stories of sheep falling off of cliffs. Stories of sheep being killed by wild animals. Or even just dying of fright. You get the picture pretty quick that sheep need a lot of guidance. Maybe that's why there are so many stories about sheepdogs as well, like the two sheepdogs from British Columbia, who kept their flocks safely away from a wildfire after their owners had been forced to evacuate without them. Not all sheepdogs are that competent. There's a story about a uh, seven-month-old border collie puppy uh, from Devon who herded a whole flock of sheep into their owner's house. I think this illustrates the point that sheep need good leadership. Um, They just tend to follow whoever, and so it matters a lot that they have somebody who knows how to take care of them. How appropriate, then, that in this psalm, David compares God's care for him uh, to the care of a skilled shepherd leading his flock on a journey. In previous sermons, I've said that this group of psalms which Psalm 23 fits into, Psalms 18 through 24, are all about kingship. Psalm 18 is the first psalm since Psalm 2 to refer to David as God's king and Messiah. And we've seen this theme repeated in Psalms 20 and Psalm 21. But then in the crisis of Psalm 22, as David felt himself forsaken by God, the emphasis shifted away from human kingship back to the fact that kingship belongs to the Lord. In other words, God is still Israel's ultimate king. Psalm 23 continues this theme of kingship. How, you might ask me? After all, the word king doesn't occur in the psalm one time. Well, it's important to know that one of the most common metaphors in the ancient Near East, and therefore also the Bible, used to describe a king is that the king is a shepherd, and his people are his sheep. And this psalm applies that metaphor to God. 
So as we see this psalm portraying God as a shepherd this morning, we have to realize that it also portrays God as a king. The real and ultimate king behind Israel's merely human king. This is, of course, a very familiar psalm. I'm sure it's a favorite of many of you. But it's also a little puzzling at times. And as we go along, I'm going to get some help from uh, a couple articles written by a former professor of mine, Dr. Doug Green. You'll hear me mention him a couple times. Uh, if you're interested in those articles, just go ahead and email me, and, uh, and I'll, I'll send them to you so you can learn some more. And as we go through this psalm, we're going to be taken on a journey of three stages. And that will be the stages of this sermon. Stage number one, God shepherds David by providing for his needs. Stage number two, God shepherds David through dangers. And stage number three, God leads David to his temple. So, one, God shepherds David by providing for his needs. Two, God shepherds David through dangers. And three, God leads David to his temple. And then at the end, we'll ask ourselves how this psalm points forward to Jesus. So, stage number one. God shepherds David by providing for his needs. Verse one. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. These words introduce the theme of the whole psalm. God is David's shepherd, which, remember, means that God is David's king, a sovereign who rules over and cares for him. And that's why the words, I shall not want, follow immediately. Because God is David's shepherd, David does not need to worry about his needs. God will care for him. Verse 2 paints us a vivid picture of this care. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This conjures a springtime image when seasonal rains would have filled pools and green plants would be sprouting from the earth. The shepherd knows how to lead his sheep to this abundance so that they could eat and drink their fill and then lie down to rest. Kids, what do animals look like when they get comfy? Do you, do you have a pet who sometimes takes naps? Maybe after they've had a lot to eat, um, you know, some of them maybe lie on their bellies with their paws in the air or just flat out on their sides. I, I think that the passage suggests that sheep crouch down, which I believe I've seen before. Think of that. If you can imagine um, your, favorite, your favorite dog or cat zonked out in their nap, this is the peace that these sheep experience. What is this picture emphasizing? It is the dependence of the sheep on God. The sheep cannot guide itself, but needs to be led by God to this place of rest and plenty. David is acknowledging his dependence on God, that God is the one who ultimately provides for his needs. And he is expressing his trust that God will take care of him like a loving shepherd. Okay. That's stage one, the verdant pasture where God shepherds David by providing for his needs. On to stage two, our journey continues. God shepherds David through dangers. The words that open verse three are a little enigmatic. He restores my soul. 
What does that mean? Well, it could help us a bit if we translated instead, he restores my life, as it could also be translated. And then we need to get a little help from my old teacher, Dr. Green, who takes this as a heading for what follows in the rest of the psalm. You see, from this point in the psalm, the darkness of death begins to intrude upon this idyllic pastoral scene. David's life is going to come under threat. If he does not quite die, he at least travels through the land of the dead, past the underworld gates, if you will. But God restores him from this danger. And I think that's what he restores my life is summarizing. Verse 3 continues. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here we see that God's care for David doesn't just include provision for his physical needs, but also careful guidance of his ethical life, leading him to walk in righteousness, keeping him on the straight and narrow, as they say. Biblically, that's something that we can never achieve on our own. We are always dependent on God for our walk in Christian virtue. As Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We must lean on God for our righteousness just as much as we must for our daily bread. And why does God do this? For his name's sake. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, someone's name is their fame or reputation. God's name is how he made himself known to the world. When God gives his name to his people, when God puts his name on his people, he binds himself to his people so that he might be known through them. This is why God leads David in righteous paths, so that God's name, God's reputation, might be honored by those who see David's life. So when God acts for the sake of his name, it's not a selfish, egotistical thing. Rather, it shows us God's desire to be known, worshipped, and honored by humans. God wants to be glorified in David so that through that glorifying, he can share himself with even more people. Okay, so far this is still a pretty nice picture, right? But then we turn to verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What? The valley of the shadow of death? Have, have we taken a wrong turn here? Suddenly, God's leading doesn't seem so attractive. Whatever happened to the verdant pastures? Whatever happened to I shall not lack? Seems like the path of righteousness can lead over some pretty rocky terrain. So what's going on here? Why is the shepherd taking David to this desert place? Well, you see, the season has shifted. Gone is the fecundity of the rainy season. Now the hot summer sun is baking the land. The restful pools have dried up. The grass is withered. Now the shepherd must lead his sheep by treacherous paths through steep valleys in search of any remaining foliage to sustain them. 
This valley is named the Valley of the Shadow of Death, or maybe just the Valley of Deep Shadow. Some people translate differently. Either way, though, there are underworld associations to this term. It is reminiscent of death. The shepherd must lead his sheep through that realm of death in order to provide for them. How much of this can the sheep understand? Does it know why the plentiful water and grass are gone? Does it know why its shepherd is taking it on such a perilous track? I don't know. But David says, I will fear no evil. Despite the danger, the sheep does not fear. Why not? For you are with me. The sheep trust the shepherd. Even if all comfort and security are stripped away, the sheep still feels safe so long as the shepherd is nearby. The verse continues, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What are the rod and staff for? Why does the shepherd carry those? Well, for one thing, they are weapons the shepherd will use to ward off prowling predators the lions or bears that might seek to devour the vulnerable sheep. David well knew the necessity of this task since he fought lions and bears while he was tending sheep, long before he ever fought Goliath. But the rod and staff also have another function. They are used to discipline the sheep. We can't help but think back to verse 3 where David said that God leads him in paths of righteousness. This may require discipline. God may have to use his rod and staff to keep David on the right path. But how is that a comfort to know that you might be disciplined? Well, I think the answer is that David knows that he receives this discipline as a beloved son. You see, back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David's heirs, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. You see, this discipline comes with the love of a father and the commitment that God may discipline, but he will not cast off and abandon David. So the rod and the staff are a comfort to David in both of these cases. God will protect David from his enemies, and God will protect David from himself, keeping him from straying away and from the path and being abandoned forever. Let's stop and apply this point to ourselves for a moment. There's a lot to be afraid of right now, isn't there? Coronavirus, economic uncertainty, police brutality, riots and looting, and I'm sure those murder hornets are still out there somewhere. I'm sure that many of us feel like we are there, in that valley of the shadow of death. But there's a promise in this passage. God is with us. We do not need to fear any evil. Our good shepherd is guiding us in the way he has for us to go. The wolves can't get to us. 
Even our own sin can't destroy us. So let's, let's take, take a breath. Let, let, just let that sink in for a moment. God is with us. We will fear no evil. Okay, so that's our second stage. The valley of the shadow of death, where God shepherds David through dangers. Our third point. God leads David to his temple. Here the metaphor shifts. I, mean, I know you were told not to mix metaphors in English class, but the Bible does it all the time. And God is now more a host than a shepherd, and David isn't a sheep anymore. He changes back into a human being. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Once again, the season has shifted. Now it is harvest time, when God's people would have traveled to his temple to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Um, Basically, they would build these temporary shelters and they would camp out in the fields as a reminder of their time in the wilderness. It was a time of great fasting and abundant provision. David tells us that God has spread out a table before him. He has given him abundant food. And his cup overflows. Or or maybe we should follow the old Greek translation and Jerome's Latin translation by rendering this as, my cup intoxicates. I don't know, am I allowed to say that God brings good booze to the party? After all, the wine that our Lord and Savior provided at the wedding feast at Cana was good wine. While scripture does warn us of the dangers of drunkenness, yes, it is also noteworthy that God in the Old Testament invites his people to feast with him and enjoy his good gifts of alcohol in that context. Why should the devil have all the good parties? David's enemies are also here. That's weird. But why are they here? Is it like when you have to invite the whole class to your birthday party? What are David's enemies doing here? Well, maybe this means that David is richly provided for while his enemies are powerless to stop it. Maybe they're still around, but they, they can't stop it. Or maybe we're supposed to imagine that the enemies are subdued and defeated and tied up on the floor or something. Or is it possible that David's enemies are reconciled and they can now eat together? The phrase remains somewhat enigmatic, Although Dr. Green does suggest uh, we compare it with Zechariah 14, 16 to 19, where the prophet envisions Israel's traditional enemies among the nations all being brought to Jerusalem during the Feast of Sukkot to join together in worship of God. Maybe we have a similar idea here. Either way, the main point of this verse is the abundance of God's provision for David. God has brought David through the dark valley to an even greater fullness than he had before. His trust in the shepherd has paid off. I shall not lack has now been filled with a deeper meaning. It doesn't mean that things will never be hard, but it expresses that faith that on the other side of suffering, God has an abundance of blessings stored up. God's promise that David shall not lack 
may seem untrue in the valley of the shadow of death, but it will be vindicated in the end. Verse 6 continues. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Follow is a bit of a weak translation. The word is really pursue, like a wild animal or a predator. David is being hunted down. Only instead of being hunted down by something evil, it is God's goodness and mercy, his divine attributes that relentlessly chase down David. How eager God is to exercise his attributes on David's behalf. God is relentless in his pursuit of David. Even if David wanted to escape God's goodness, he could not get away from it. The verse continues, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, or for a long time. Forever isn't quite really the right translation here, even if it is traditional. But this verse shows us that David's ultimate destination is God's house. The ultimate point of the feast is not the food, it's the host. David is invited to God's house to fellowship with him. This is the greatest blessing, simply the blessing of God's presence. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord is just the Greek translation, though. It's not what our Hebrew version says. You may or may not be aware that the Hebrew text was originally written without vowels. That probably seems weird to you um, as an English speaker or of many other languages because you think that you need vowels in order to be able to read. You don't. You think you do, but you actually don't. What's happened here, well, usually it makes no difference at all. We can tell completely what the word is, but occasionally you get a different meaning in a passage by reading different vowels. The Greek has read the vowels for, I shall dwell, but the Hebrew version we have available to us today reads the vowels as, I shall keep returning, with that sense of doing it over and over again. It would actually be the same verb as he restores my life in verse 3. The psalm would then be the first pilgrimage psalm in the Psalter, describing the yearly return to the temple for this feast and recognizing God's providential protection on the journey. It would also allow us to recognize that the shape of Psalm 23 is a repeated experience in the believer's life. There will be times of plenty and times of suffering. But God will always bring his sheep through those times of suffering to new blessing. This certainly describes David's life, doesn't it? The crisis that we saw in Psalm 22, it's not been the first crisis in the Psalter, and it won't be the last. David expresses trust in God not just for the present, but also for all his future trials. He knows that God will be with him and deliver him from all of them. Is this true of your experience of the Christian life? Some of you who are older Christians will know this better than the rest of us. You've had many of those difficult moments, but God has provided for you. He always brought you through the valley. Some of us who are younger are still learning this lesson. This psalm highlights the importance of remembering these times of feasting. These times of celebration in God's deliverance. 
maybe for you, the time right after you put your faith in Jesus is one of these moments. A moment of incredible joy and peace. Maybe it was a time when God showed you the beauty of the gospel in a new way. Maybe it was a time when God blessed you with an amazing blessing. Maybe it was a time when God brought you through an excruciating trial. Do not forget those moments. My mother calls them Ebenezer's, times when God helped us. Remembering them, holding on to them, can help us learn that God will bring us through the valley again and again. There will always be trials in this life, but God will always bring us through these trials to greater abundance. In fact, the valleys are themselves the path of that greater, greater abundance. There's no road to Jerusalem except through this path. This morning, take some time to let this story really sink in and and get into your bones. God is your shepherd. Your story will be the story of his loving care in your life. How he brought you time and time again closer to him through your trials, closer to his presence. Okay, so that's our third and final stage on the journey. God leads David to his temple. Now let's take a moment to consider how this psalm points us to Jesus. We said earlier that although David as king can be compared to a shepherd, this psalm emphasizes that God is the ultimate shepherd king. And what an important point that is in the Old Testament. You see, Israel's human shepherds failed regularly in their duty to care for the sheep. Even David failed as a shepherd, spectacularly, by sleeping with the wife of one of his soldiers and having his soldier murdered. And Israel's subsequent leaders were even worse. Earlier, Frank read from Ezekiel 34, which says that Israel's leaders are like shepherds who devour and destroy the flock instead of caring for it. God's solution is twofold. God himself will come to be Israel's shepherd, and he will install a new David, a perfect shepherd who will care for them well. These prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. As God and man, Jesus actually steps into both parts of this prophecy. He himself is God stepping in as shepherd for his people, and he is also the perfect human king who does not fail in his shepherding duties. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus sees the people of Israel like sheep without a shepherd and is moved to compassion over them. And in John 10, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. He is not like the thief who breaks in to destroy the flock, nor is he like the hired hand who runs at the first sign of danger. No. His commitment to his flock is such that he willingly lays down his life for his sheep so that they might have abundant life. Jesus' willingness to lay down his life reveals another side of this theme, though. In order to be the good shepherd, Jesus must first be the good sheep. He must lay down his life as a sacrificial lamb, 
Revelation 7.17 combines both sides of this imagery. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Jesus is both the Lamb and the shepherd. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb? Well, it means that Jesus also trusts in God's providential care. The Lord is Jesus' shepherd, to borrow the title of an article by Dr. Green. In Luke 4, we find Jesus in the wilderness. And just as the sheep in Psalm 23 trust God to guide him through the valleys, so Jesus depends on God in the midst of physical deprivation, refusing to give in to the devil's temptations, relying on the word of God more than bread. This is how Jesus lives his whole life, trusting in his Father's providential care, sticking to his Father's path of righteousness. This path takes him even deeper down into the valley of the shadow of death. But still, Jesus trusts. Even in Gethsemane, he does not give in to fear, but follows God's leading. Jesus knows that the crucifixion is the valley he has to walk through, before God can bring him to the abundant glory on the other side. And yet, God is with him even in that valley. When I preached Psalm 22, we saw how it expressed the truth that God's king was forsaken by God, only it turned out in the end that he was not ultimately forsaken. Psalm 23 echoes this truth, that God has been with his king, guiding him through the valleys all along. And the Gospel of Luke echoes this theme. Dr. Green, again, suggests it particularly emphasizes God's presence with Jesus in his trials. In Luke, we're told that an angel is sent to comfort Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Jesus' last words, our Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus on the cross still places his faith in his Father and his Father's providential care and entrusts his Spirit to God. In doing this, Jesus is the Lamb, the sacrifice, the one who has borne our sins. And he gives us the obedience of his righteousness in place of our sin. What's more, God brings Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. He raises him from the dead and exalts him to his right hand in heaven, so that Jesus can now rule over us as our king and shepherd. Because Jesus was first our sheep, we can now be sure that he will care for us. Jesus has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, just as we have, and therefore he understands our suffering. Jesus has walked through the valley of the shadow of death in a way that we will never have to, experiencing the full wrath of God for us so that he can redeem us from the curse. Isn't this a great comfort? An even better encouragement than David had that God will be with us. We have Christ, our great shepherd. And we can trust him 
in our journey here on this earth. We can trust him through the dark valleys. He will faithfully shepherd us, guiding us to springs of living water, keeping us and preserving us through the darkness of this world until we reach that future kingdom when Christ returns and God wipes away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Passover Lamb sacrificed for us, and also our resurrected Shepherd, who loves us, cares for us, carries us, feeds us, and protects us in our lives here. May you work this reality deep into our hearts that we may trust in you and that we may not fear. In Jesus' name, amen.